This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you this Thursday afternoon? It is five past twelve. You are off to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today to get the latest on this system that's coming through. The main front should be on the Capes, sort of Cape Lewin to Cape Naturalist, right about now. And parts of the Southwest Land Division are, well, parts of the Southwest in particular are expected to get sort of between 10 to 25 millimetres. Sort of moving south from Bunbury, Bridgetown, Manjimup, Windy Harbour, Walpole, and moving inland to places like Darkin and Collie too. That's just a sort of potted overview, but Matt Boderhoven is going to go through those details for you just after half past 12. And if you're interested in the beef industry and thinking to yourself, how long are these current high prices going to be around? Well, stick around, because in a moment you might get an answer. You'll hear about what's going on in Brazil at the moment, and China's taking a lot of Brazil's cattle, and that could firm up world beef prices for quite some time. Uh, Those details for you just before headlines at half past 12 today. And farmers in WA's Grain Belt are making some last-minute changes to their cropping programs to take advantage of the 10-year record high prices for canola Taking a look at yesterday's prices, ex-Quinana, old crop canola was fetching $657 a tonne and new crop $755 a tonne. That's a $40 premium on the best prices on offer for canola around the world. The latest Giwa crop report has canola plantings well over 1.4 million hectares. That's already a record for WA and likely to increase in the updated crop report, which is due out next week. Monica Field is an agronomist at Farm and General in Esperance. Monica, are you seeing a lot more canola go in the ground this season in your patch too? Yeah, there's definitely been an increase in the canola plantings over and above, I guess, planned um, where possible. Yeah, we obviously had some sourcing seed issues that was obviously probably a little bit of a hindrance to how much you could put in, but there's been, yeah, probably at the expense of barley, an increase in the canola hectares with with the pricing and also the start that we've had. I guess most of the state is the same, but probably one of the better Aprils that we've had. And so the germination and the seeding conditions have been significantly better. All right. So really driven by those prices that are on offer at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a driving factor. I guess it's one of the highest we've had in a number of years. And then, yeah, as I said, like those more marginal areas that canola is probably a little bit more iffy. Some have had quite good summer rain and then we've had a follow-up good April. So it's felt a lot more confident and the germination has been probably some of the best we've had in a couple of years. And have you have you seen also, which is something that we've heard here, is that some farmers are even moving livestock or sheep off the properties and just to clear a paddock to put canola in there. Have you heard that in the patch you cover? Yeah. I mean, there's probably been a reduction in the livestock numbers in the last probably year, particularly same in those more marginal 
salmon gums, grass patch areas, and that has sometimes been to do with water as well, and water is still a pretty big issue. So, yeah, if you, if, yes, it's a reason to get rid of them in that area. If you can't feed them off that and have no water available, then, yeah, it's going into crops. And this season, uh, seeding, have you seen those sort of tweaks and changes to the cropping program more so than you have in, in previous years in that Esperance Shire? Yeah, I would say so. Like, it's usually pretty stable through here, but there probably has been a few more last-minute changes and switching, which is, yeah, to do with the season, I think, but also the last few years there's probably been a more dominance of cereals with some of the starts and so the ability to have a good break that also could make you some money even if your yield isn't fantastic like we don't know what the year's going to be but yeah I guess it's an attractive way to do it. How challenging has it been to try and get your hands on that canola seed though even if you have made that decision to tweak your program a little bit it's um, quite difficult to get that seed at the moment. Very, very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's an ongoing issue. This hybrid seed stuff. I mean, we, you know, as a business, I know majority of our orders were done by September, and then we still had a lot not filled. And yeah, I think every single seed company had some type of issue this year. Um, and then we also had the added thing of there was a lot of really big seed size. So even though you had seed, your seed rate probably needed to be higher than you've been working on. So. Yes, it has been difficult. Um, and in terms of extra areas, yeah, sometimes it's been, yeah, just putting in leftover TTOPs that you kind of had, bonitos and stuff, even though they might yield less. Yeah, canola's still canola, I guess, at the end of the day. It's going to make you more money than probably the alternative of barley, if that's what it's replacing. Yeah, what sort of lengths are farmers going to to try and get some of that seed? Uh, I know there's been a lot of switching and changing, so people being good, like if they have a bit left over, they'll let either us know or they'll let you know, their neighbours know and they've been using every little skerrick. I don't think there'll be anything left in in any of the sheds anyway, <laughs> that's for sure. And how's the season shaping up uh, then, Monica? Like how far do you cover the Esperance Shire? So give us a bit of an idea, yeah. a mud map of where you cover and, and how the season's shaping up this year. Um, I probably don't know right up the top, up to the top of salmon gums or anything like that. I'll probably stop around Grass Patch and then go up to Cascade, up east, up to the top of Beaumont. Um, and it looks good. Yeah, there's probably been more rain in on the eastern side than the western side, but we've had, most people had at least 15 to 20 in that kind of rain out of the cyclone, which was a pretty good start. And it looks like we might get some follow-up rain tomorrow, which people look pretty happy about. But, yeah, as I said, germinations of stuff that was sown before the rain is is good. As we're kind of getting just to the end of that moisture, it started to get a little bit patchy. But, yeah, the germination has been good. It's probably actually been trying to slow people down because there's a lot of barley in the ground as well now and a lot of people trying to put wheat in the ground. So it's actually trying to cool the heels, which is sometimes a little bit difficult. <laughs> and and you said the, the, the region may get some of this rain from the system coming through. Mm. What sort of falls are, is it looking like at this stage? Uh, I mean, everyone looks at every different forecast, so I can't even tell you. But I mean, yeah, just 5 to 10 mil would be great to kind of just chop up that area on the top of the soil that's dry, that's dried out in the last couple of weeks. And yeah, keep be nice to still have wet seeding conditions. It's something... We haven't had, and most of the state, I guess, haven't had for a long time. 
That'd be nice. Okay. Well, fingers crossed yeah. some of that comes your way. Uh, Monica, great to talk yep. to you today on the Country Hour. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Monica Field, who's an agronomist with Farmer General in Esperance. And Monica also says there's been a reduction in the amount of hectares going to pulses, with much of that also being replaced by canola. And that's mainly due to poor pricing and average yields in previous years and also difficulty with broadleaf weed control. 13 past 12. China may not want Australian barley at the moment, but it is buying big volumes of sorghum this season, and that's pushing sorghum prices above those for wheat and barley. Most of Australia's sorghum is grown in Queensland and northern New South Wales, but this is still relevant for Western Australia because any tweaks to China's grain buying behaviour tends to affect markets for other grains and even the wine industry. Grain trader Anthony Furse says Chinese buyers see Australian sorghum as a low-cost feed rather than premium grain for alcohol production. So we're seeing this massive buying program from China and they're buying US corn, Aussie wheat, uh, Ukrainian barley. They've just been on a a, a rip-tearing buying program here. And what we're seeing out of the... US and, and, and where it will get interesting for Australia here is that the volumes of corn that they've been buying out of the US and soybeans uh, chokes up a lot of their port capacity. Uh, so even if there's some you know spare sorghum in the US that, that the US growers want to sell, it's hard to get the elevation capacity to get it on a boat and get it into China. So what we're seeing price-wise is US sorghum is currently over 400 US dollars a tonne into China which is a massive price. It's, it's very expensive and, and there's not really that many US sorghum offers that are available. So China will, you know, for what sorghum they need and they're juggling around their domestic rations to, to feed livestock uh, to try and reduce the reliance on corn and use uh, other feed grains as well. Uh, and part of that will be Australian sorghum. So essentially what you're saying is that the US sorghum crop is of such high quality that it's now really attractive to the alcohol production market in China, whereas Australia, less quality and the price bracket that's making it more attractive to feed. When was the last time this dynamic was there? When when was the last time the market looked like this? Yeah, look, I can't remember. I, I mean, the, 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 the Chinese market has developed a lot in, in the last you know couple of decades. We've gone from, uh, we've really increased the volumes of, of Australian sorghum uh, exported to China. Uh, and in that time, I can't remember, you know, where we've been trading at such a massive discount to US product. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite unusual, very unusual. Right. And, and is feed a, traditionally, is, is feed sorghum a market in China that Australia has had access to? Oh, look, definitely. Um, but what we find is it, it's more towards the wine market and we get it. Australia normally gets a premium for Australian sorghum over US sorghum because of our quality. So we don't tend to, unless there's years where they really need some, some feed or there's a a good surplus of their own sorghum, which is very rare. We predominantly go direct to their wine market because of our quality. Some, sure, would make it into the feed market, but the feed market's generally a lower price. So, 
which is good for the the Australian sorghum grower if we're connecting more with their their wine users because we get a premium for our quality sorghum. Uh, so there has been demand, and, and Australia is trading at a big discount, which is really irregular. I mean, normally we we are able to achieve a, a anywhere between a five and twenty US dollar premium for Australian sorghum. We're seeing a switch in the last couple months where the permits for import into China uh, are now coming out under feed permits where they're normally uh, a food permit, which is used for the wine. So they're seeing Australian values of sorghum now warranted to go into the feed market and that's what they're using it for. How long do you think this market dynamic is going to last? Oh, well, look, rewind a month or two and global prices well, the global market for grains was factoring in fairly good production for all grains in the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere as, as being big crops everywhere. You know, we we're going to have another really big production year globally. And the market prices were lower because of factoring that in. What changed very quickly and, and often does this time of year, because we're now in springtime in the Northern Hemisphere, this is crunch time for a lot of uh, crops, is we're seeing cracks in some of the production areas the uh, winter kill or dryness or too wet. And and we've seen if we use US corn futures as a barometer here, they've rallied nearly over 150 cents a bushel. Now, that's a substantial rally. We haven't seen action like that since 2008. Now, 150 cents a bushel, that's about 60 US dollars a tonne, which is about 75, 77 Aussie dollars a tonne. That's a big market shift in the last few weeks. So where we thought that potentially the sorghum market, our time to shine for the Aussie grower would have been in this period here, now May, June, July, uh, is a period where we really need to get our sorghum out the door and enjoy these high prices before the northern hemisphere crops start to compete against us. Well, now maybe we've had a bit more of a fundamental shift in that uh, potentially if there's lower production and this China demand is not debating, we might enjoy these prices through through the rest of the year. Grain trader Anthony First, who is a commodity trader for Robinson Grain, and he was speaking to John Daly. 19 past 12. Uh, you can be part of the conversation here on The Country Hour anytime you like on the text 0448 922604. And Albert from Kojanup has text through. And maybe you can help out here. Albert's wondering what's the rule of thumb when broadacres spraying near towns. There was a nasty smell in town this morning that made my nose tingle, says Albert. And then I noticed the farmer spraying with the wind going straight towards town. Or should I just be grateful the farmer is making my next meal? Well, I thought it was up to the individual farmer to check conditions and if it's too windy not to spray, sort of make those decisions on a case-by-case basis, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can shed some light on that. Obviously, the farmer doesn't want to lose the the chemicals just spraying off the farm where he's trying to spray, and there's the environmental factor too. 0448 922 604 if you can help out this afternoon, 20 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Brazil is the world's largest exporter of beef, And right now, its cattle prices are at record highs and have more than doubled in the last two years. The boom is being driven largely by the demand from, you guessed it, China. But China's escalating appetite for beef now seems to be chewing into Brazil's national herd. 
and the ramifications could be huge. One person who's been following this closely is independent analyst Brett Stewart. So, interesting situation. The, the Brazilian cow herd just grows and grows and grows and has done for decades. And uh, then, of course, China jumps into the market and becomes Brazil's biggest buyer. And so, with those huge volumes of Brazilian beef uh, going into China now, they're subject to China's requirements. And so, Chinese requirements say that it has to be 30 months of age and under to go from Brazil to China. So those high prices in China last year pulled cattle out of Brazil under 30 months of age. So you can see what's happening, right? They start sending those younger cattle um, because the prices are so good. They're not just sending steers, they're sending their heifers as well. And you fast forward here, we get into 2021, and all of a sudden we hear that 45% of Brazil's beef packing plants are idled and cattle prices are record high. They're more than double what they were in 2019. And so you start putting the pieces together and go, look what's going on here. Brazil killed maybe not just one crop of cattle last year. They may have killed one and a half crops of cattle last year. And they simply cannot find the steers and heifers to slaughter now. And so they're idling their plants. There's no cattle down there. And the price just keeps going higher and higher and higher for cattle. So just on the meatworks, uh, reports have come out suggesting that the reason that Brazilian abattoirs are shutting down is because of falling domestic demand. Uh, do you not agree with that? Well, no, I think that's probably true. I think domestic demand in Brazil is very weak right now. You've got to think about this. So they're going through COVID in a terrible way. Uh, the COVID cases, the deaths per, per 100,000 in Brazil are very high right now, some of the highest in the world. And so they've had terrible problems with COVID. Unlike the US, they don't have that big checkbook to write stimulus. And so they've got COVID deaths, they've got no stimulus, their currency's weakened now for years. Uh, China's in there buying everything they can buy from a commodity standpoint, corn, soybeans, poultry, beef, pork. The, the inflation has made it very hard for the Brazilians to buy product. And so I think their domestic demand is very weak. The problem with that story from the meat work saying, well, demand's weak and that's why we're idling capacity, does not explain record high cattle prices. And by record high, these cattle prices, these are 21 rei per kilo in Brazil. Now they were 10 in January, 2019. Even through the middle of 2019, they were about 10. Uh, they're 20 today. Now that's Australian, that's $4.78 a kilo. That's a dressed weight. Um, but these prices every week keep going higher and higher and higher into new record highs. If you have 45% of the meat works idled, why are cattle prices record high every week? And what that tells me is they simply cannot find enough cattle. It's a similar situation to what's going on in Australia right now, just for a very different reason. When it comes to Brazil's cattle herd, how easy is it to get accurate information on the size of the herd and what it's doing. Yeah, not not easy, Matt. It's uh, it's not uh, real transparent. The cattle industry down there is very fragmented at the at the producer or the ranch level. Um, at the packer level, it's very consolidated. And so I rely upon the numbers that USDA estimates for the herd. They're not great. I have some questions with them because right now they're forecasting production and exports higher this year. We know that's not going to be the case. Production's going to be lower. 
and exports are going to be lower. And so that's the challenge of our business. We're trying to discern what's going on in these markets without data. And so the data we have are prices. And the thing I've learned is prices don't lie. Prices tell you where the product's clearing. What you have to figure out is, is it supply or is it demand? And in this case for Brazil, export demand is phenomenal. Domestic demand is terrible. And the cattle numbers are falling like a stone. And so what does all of this mean for Australia's cattle industry, do you think, Brett? Yeah. So like I said, they're in a similar situation that Australia is in right now, simply not enough cattle to fill the plants. And so Australia is in the same boat. We saw those uh, EYCI price hit a record high here a couple of weeks ago. Just cattle prices keep going higher and higher and the meat works are bleeding. They're struggling. They can't keep the plants operating. They just don't have the cattle because of the restocking going on. So what this means, you look and go, okay, Brazil and Australia are two of the largest beef exporters worldwide. Both of them are seeing production fall this year and exports fall this year. That tightens the global supply. Now, what really makes this interesting, China is now the biggest beef importer in the world. They're the number one market for Brazil, and they're one of the key markets for Australia as well. And so the key competitive markets between Brazil and Australia are China, Hong Kong, and the US. And you watch the interplay of what happens with beef here. We've all seen just uh, this year already, US beef imports from Australia in January, February, were down over 50% from a year ago because of high prices and tight supplies. This global beef market is tightening even further. And so countries like Japan that depend on that Australian beef are seeing price hikes and availability problems. China, the the beef price in China was record high in February. Today, it's only 3% off that record high. China has enormous demand for beef. And here, what I'm telling you is two of their biggest suppliers are now seeing declining production and declining exports. And so that's just going to further escalate the, the price of global beef into 2021. Brett Stewart, he's the president of Global Agri-Trends, speaking to Matt Brand. 27 past 12, and just a little more information for you, picking up on what the grain trader was telling you just earlier, referring to sorghum being used for the wine market. Did you know what is the world's biggest selling alcoholic spirit? It is not whiskey. It is not vodka. It's China's national drink. It is a white spirit called Baijiu or Baijiu, which makes up a third of the world's total liquor output. And Baijiu is distilled mainly from sorghum that's been fermented in pits or earthware jars. And Mike from Lake Grace says it's so refreshing to hear a grain analyst talking our grain market up. Hasn't happened for years now, and I was wondering if they were just doing the merchants beckoning. Thank you for helping the farmers, said Mike in Lake Grace. The text is 0448 922 604. Just before the news headlines, if you're a farmer, just imagine selling your produce for less than it cost for you to seed, grow and harvest it. Well, that is the position some Western Australian cray fishermen are in right now. Jay Barrett fishes out at Ledge Point, about 100 kilometres north of Perth, and at the moment he's simply trying to minimise his losses. 
that's what I'm receiving around twenty three dollars. Um, not everybody's getting priced that high at the moment. Some some guys are much much lower, but we're just running in towards the end of our quota season now. It finishes on June thirty, so we've still got quota to catch, and we just want to get it caught now and finished off before the winter kicks in. And we sort of held some back just to see if we might have been lucky enough to see a bit of a kick in the price at all, but that hasn't happened. So now it's just time to finish it up and, and knock off. With the, the situation where it is in terms of there isn't a lot of money in it, how are you managing that? Are you going out every couple of days? What's the, the thinking there? Yeah, right now, no, we're, we're sort of multi-day pulling every every third day and we're just trying to get our catch rates a little bit higher and our expenses down. So instead of fishing every day and pumping bait and fuel out of through the boat, we do it every third day, get our catch rates a bit higher and it's only one day's running expenses. So we're just trying to do it as cheap as we possibly can because there's no profit in it now. So we're just trying to minimise the loss. You know, I, I lease quota and, and we're paying $39 a kilo for our lease quota and we haven't seen a price better than 23 or a little a little period a bit better than $25 um, earlier on, but we haven't seen much better than 23 for five, six months now, five months, yeah. When did you set that price of 39 a kilo for your lease quota? Uh, well, we signed lease prior to the start of the season because we went into a lease agreement through our processor. Uh, so we signed up that lease then. Uh, there was a way out that I didn't, actually didn't know about and I wasn't quite astute enough to know the ins and outs of when the season got changed and the and the quota got changed when the season was extended, that there was an out there, but we didn't use that out and it's actually come back to bite us a little bit. So, you know, it's made it a little bit tougher for us guys this year, but we're not alone. You know, there's a lot of guys on the coast that have really, really, really struggled this year. It really does seem like the more lease quota that you have, the tougher this period is for you. Because you're looking uh, at what yeah. a, a $16 gap there at least between... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what you've paid and, and what you're getting. But have you got some of your own quota as well that's helping to cover that gap? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually drive the boat for my mum. She owns she owns the licence, so it's family business. And uh, we own a fair, uh, most of our quota, probably three quarters, maybe a little bit more of what we have, um, we own. And then we just lease a little bit more on top just to, uh, you know, bump the cruise wages up a little bit more to give them some more income. Over the past few years, has it been worth it when it comes to leasing quota? Uh, no, not really, not at all. Uh, there's been very little uh, wiggle room between what we pay to lease the quota and what that quota can earn because it's a set quota, so you allocated so many kilos per pot. Uh, so you've got to try and find the maximum price just to give yourself some sort of profit margin. Uh, there hasn't been any margins there for, for quite a few years. So, yeah, it's been it's difficult when you lease. Um, you know, we're quite thankful that we do own some quota, so it makes life a little bit easier for us, but it is, it's, um, it's a hard situation to be in. If you look into the next season, Jay, what do you reckon the lay of the land will be when it comes to quota and lease prices and that sort of thing? Do you think the industry will look pretty different? I think there's going to be a big adjustment in the way f- the fisheries run when it comes to investor quota and, and guys that own quota that don't fish. I believe that maybe the lease agreements might become a little bit obsolete and hopefully as a fisherman uh, we can get the investors into like share fish agreements. Then we share the costings um, and the expenses and then they know exactly what we're going through to, um, to make a dollar. The, you know, p- prices have dropped already since all this happened. Uh, they're down 30, 30 plus percent, I'd say. Um, so they're dropping quite severely. So our, our asset value as a business has just 
is dwindling away as well. Our cash flow is gone and most guys are burning up savings in the bank if they've got any. So for you from here, it's just fishing that quota, getting through to uh, the end of June and then yep. what, have a bit of a break? Uh, we'll have a, yeah, probably have five or six weeks off, just repair all our gear that needs to be rebattened at the end of the end of season. So uh, we'll strip it all down and rebuild it and stick it in the shed for a, for a month or so. And then, yeah, we'll just reassess going forward and see what the price does coming into September. Because in September, we usually get a bit of a kick in the price if anything happens overseas. But, you know, with losing our Chinese market, we, we just don't know what the future holds. No. Uh, and, and, and the domestic market in Australia, you know, at certain times does takes a really good amount of product off us. But to be able to absorb all the WA craze plus all the East Coast craze, it just can't happen. So we really do rely on the export market. Ledge Point lobster fisherman Jay Barrett talking to Joe Prendergast about his current predicament. And all brought about because in November last year, Chinese authorities claimed a sample of Australian rock lobster contained excessive levels of the heavy metal cadmium. And since then, China's stopped importing Australian craze. In... Sorry, uh, it just skipped right in front of my eyes, in front of the screen. Uh, in the last few years, China's been taking about 98% of the Western Rock lobsters caught off the coast of WA. If you were here listening to the show yesterday, you would have heard Calbarry cray fisherman Terry Ash saying he's getting back behind the wheel of his cray fishing boat. For the last seven years, he was happy to lease his pots out, but that's all changed when China stopped buying crays and the price crashed. If you missed it, just search WA Country Hour ABC and you'll be able to find the podcast for yesterday's show. 25 to 1. Tony Carr's here with an update from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. Members of WA's 41st Parliament are being sworn in as a depleted opposition prepares for a challenging four years ahead, during which they'll be overwhelmingly outnumbered by Labor MPs. Labor holds 53 seats in the Legislative Assembly, while the Nationals have four and the Liberals two. The opposition is unhappy with their new seating arrangements, which involves only two opposition members' position on the front bench directly next to Labor MPs. The Premier Mark McGowan has brushed off the complaint. WA has recorded no new community cases of COVID-19 overnight, but there are four new cases in hotel quarantine. The Premier says all four cases involve people who've travelled from India. The State Government is planning to announce the next stage of relaxed coronavirus restrictions later today. And a Senate inquiry into the development of Northern Australia has recommended the Government resume some responsibility for funding housing in remote Aboriginal communities the Commonwealth ceased large-scale funding of remote community housing two years ago after an extended dispute with the WA government. Belinda, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. That's great. Thank you for that, Tony. 24 to 1. I'm Bevan H from Manjimup and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Very shortly, getting an update on the Bravo Apple production figures right across the country and well up on last year by the looks of things the industry on track to produce a million kilograms more fruit than it did last season and off to Mount Barker just before the news at one for the results of the cattle market and the texts have already started to come through on the weather Uh, this just saying on the current radar it looks like there's heavy rain over the capes 
I'm assuming that's Cape Lewin and Naturalist and into Busselton. And then Simon says there's 18 mils in the last hour at Margaret River. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology to get more detail for you. And Matt Bodehoven is on deck this afternoon. Matt, let's start in the Southwest Land Division and that front that's now crossing the state by the sounds of things. Yeah, that's right. A line of thunderstorms uh, just on the front edge is uh, providing some very heavy rainfall over the southwest district. And uh, yeah, we've had some good falls. Um, even uh, Scott River's already got an inch. It's got 25.2 millimetres. Carradale around 15.6. Rosa Brook 13.4. So it's going well. Um, and those places uh, in the southwest district, yeah, can expect up to a, an inch um, during today as that front moves through. Um, looking at the rainfall range through the southwest of 10 to 25 millimetres and also the lower west has fairly sort of similar range. Um, and through the western parts of the Great Southern we could see um, sort of up to 10 or 15 right on the far west of the Great Southern um, but sort of into waging area to the top sort of, sort of figures probably around 8 7 or 8 millimetres through there and maybe getting up to um, 4 millimetres in the far uh, east to Lake Grace there. Um, as that front moves through, sort of similar sort of figures through the south coastal district, uh, 10 millimetres uh, around Denmark, Albany, and uh, maybe only 4 millimetres near the Bremer Bay as that front moves through. Uh, but into Friday, so that cold front will move over the eastern parts of uh, the Southwest Land Division and then contract into the bite uh, during the day. So showers through most parts of the southwest land division and they'll track to the south coast during the day. Thunderstorms possible over the southern districts and rainfall figures uh, we're looking at um, around the central west uh, will struggle to really bring a lot of rain up that way and uh, sort of rainfall figures will be less than one millimetre. Uh, through the central wet belt up to two millimetres possible. Uh, Great Southern 1 to 5 millimetres, around the south coastal districts 4 to 10 millimetres, uh, southwest 2 to 8. Um, then on Saturday, a ridge will lie over the south coast and a high will move into the bight. Some showers near the western south coast and could see up to 3 millimetres. But uh, most of the southwest land division will be mostly sunny conditions. On Sunday, the ridge will drift well south of the state and upper level trough will uh, move over the western south coast. So the showers will be enhanced over the uh, southwest and south coast district, south coastal districts and it might be uh, a chance for thunderstorms. So around coastal parts between Lewin and Albany could see 10 to 20 10 to 20 millimetres and adjacent inland parts um, sort of uh, to Mount Barkaway and a little bit inland there around up to 5 millimetres possible. Then on Monday uh, the ridge will strengthen through the bite and a surface trough will deepen off the west coast. Uh, showers will contract uh, from the western south coast during the day but we still could see another 5 to 10 millimetres around coastal parts between Windy Harbour and Bremer Bay. Uh, through the northeast parts of the central wheat belt, uh, we could see a chance of a shower thunderstorm with some mid-level moisture creeping into central parts of the state. And if you're lucky enough to score a thunderstorm through there, you could see up to five millimetres. Thank you for going through all that detail, Matt. Appreciate that. And is there much activity in northern and eastern parts of the state? Yeah, so on Friday... Um, we'll have see some showers and thunderstorms through the uh, southern parts of the goldfields and through the Eucla. Uh, we'll probably have a fire weather warning through the Eucla and South Interior there uh, with the passage of that front uh, moving into the bite. Uh, possible shower and thunderstorm in the far northern Kimberley 
um, but mainly in coastal parts there. On Saturday, um, uh, fairly mostly sunny conditions, maybe a little bit of fog around the coastal parts of the Kimberley to start off. Then into Sunday, we'll start to see a little bit of uh, moisture from the tropics creep into central parts of the state, and we could see some showers over the inland parts of the Gascoigne, northern part, northeast parts of the goldfields and adjacent south interior and into the uh, northern parts of the Eucla there. Um, and then on Monday, that uh, moisture will increase through the central parts of the state and uh, become unstable. We'll see showers and thunderstorms uh, through the inland Gascoigne, um, possibly through the western Pilbara there. Um, and uh, through the goldfields, Eucla and uh, South Interior, and that'll be linking up with those uh, thunderstorms in the far northeast parts of the central wheat belt there on uh, Monday. And warnings this afternoon? Yeah, we've got some strong winds from the Perth coastal, Perth coastal waters, Lanceland coast, uh, Bunbury Geograph, Lewin, Albany and Esperance coastal waters, and we have a fire weather warning for the Ravensthorpe Shire and Esperance Shire inland. Great. Thank you for those details, Matt. It is 19 to 1. This week on Landline, making it in the beef business. I'd rather be broken now we had a crack than, than sit back and wish we knew how it had gone. And better bushfire science. The more we can understand about that, the better able we're going to be to manage the threats that come from that and the better able we're going to be to protect the, the, the people who live on this continent. That's Landline 12.30 Sunday on ABC TV. 18 to 1. By the sounds of it, there's going to be quite a few rainfall figures to get through this time tomorrow, but there's only one of note in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Up five mils and over. It was in northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley. It was Kununurra, five millimetres in the gauge. Just before one, off to Mount Barker, and it's Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices at the cattle market. And Bravo Apple production continues to rise with the industry on track to produce a million kilograms more fruit than last season. Now in its sixth production year, producers across the country will pick as much as 4,500 tonnes of Bravo apples this season and 3,000 tonnes of that will be first-grade fruit. Sean Egelbrecht is the National Development Manager for the Bravo variety. He's happy the industry is moving in the right direction, but it is a long way off future production targets. By the year 2035, hoping to achieve a total production across Australia of about 50,000 tonnes. And so you're on track at the moment in terms of growth to reach that target based on these early sort of outcomes? I would say no. Um, There's more work to be done in in terms of meeting that final target in 2035. At the start, it was adopted quite widely by a lot of growers because it's so unique and certainly such a point of difference on shelf. And with the plantings that's been um, the production currently that's starting to mature and you know we're finding suitable avenues for that both in the domestic market as well as the export markets but now it's gone gotten to a place where growers could really see some of the returns on the variety is how it responds to the Australian climate and so forth and this is where kind of you know we need to get a bit more of the you know commercial large-scale growers invested into the variety which you feel is, is certainly you know uh, 
looking positive with the amount of export that's that's happening for the variety it's one variety um, amongst a basket of varieties in australia that we have that's really offering a strong export potential whereas a lot of the other varieties are, are predominantly for domestic consumption yeah i understand you've struck an agreement with the state government to be able to export to a yep. number of countries can you walk me through what those agreements are yeah, so the owner of, of the variety has given us approval to export mainly to the, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Those are the territories that we've been targeting initially. And the countries that we are supplying started off with Singapore, Dubai and Hong Kong. Last year, we were able to add Malaysia and Thailand to that matrix. And then this year, we're hoping to add Indonesia with the first trial shipments to them happening later this year, as well as some other countries in the Gulf region, specifically Kuwait um, and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. So um, how so much will that be... account for in terms of production of, of first-grade fruit of the, the 3,000 tonnes? Um, how much will go to the domestic market and how much are you anticipating will go to those export markets? Export markets would probably take about... 15% of our total production and the balance that would be you know through local domestic sales the export has increased year on year by about threefold so it still represents quite a low um, percentage in our total split but the increase has been quite aggressive over the last three years and we expect that trend to continue the first three years of this variety so this is our sixth commercial season the first three seasons you really have you know very little volume to go on or do any meaningful export it's only now that we're starting to get some volumes you know enough for supermarkets overseas to you know make a deranged offering and to get traction on it so jessica we expect that, that that's going to ramp up quite significantly over the next you know decade and, and and onwards that must be when you've got sort of lofty goals to try and get some of the bigger producers really invested in this and, and on board to have yeah. the guarantee of those growing number and size of international markets must be a bit of a feather in your cap in, in terms of trying to achieve that outcome yeah, certainly. From 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 a grower's point of view, you know, it's it's important that you know when, when they investing into ap- apple crops, it's an investment into the future. And the more options you have, you know, with that future in mind, the more attractive a variety becomes. So a variety that offers both a strong, a very very strong local demand, coupled with you know some significant export potential, really helps them diversify their businesses. And, you know, certainly attracts more, you know, monetary energy into the variety. Mm. Earlier this year, the the state government told growers that it had revised the colour specs. Do you think that that's part of the improved volume, that there's a bit better pack out rate, which means there's more fruit available? Yes, it's been well received by the growing community. They feel that it's definitely in, you know, it's in favour of, of, of the growers and it's helping them achieve a, a better packout, which at the end of the day um, increases their average bin returns back to farm gate level. And so we've we've been through about two and a half weeks of packing for this season. And so far, it seems that it's been, um, it's been a great help. Whilst it hasn't really compromised appearance on shelf, we're still keeping that really distinct burgundy color, which is, you know, block colored and a point of difference on shelf. So it's a win both ways. I feel that that, that specification, which was a process of both, uh, you, you know, the, the department as well as Fruit West ourselves, growers and packers that have contributed to getting those specifications revised. 
think it's making a huge difference. Yeah, is there a number on the difference that it's made, sort of around um, a percentage of, of production that might not have otherwise have been included under the previous specs? At early stages, Jessica, it seems to be sitting between 5 and 10%, although it's really early to call because we've just really started packing. But I would say early signs show it's anywhere between 5 and 10% on a grower's back out. That's a, a huge amount of fruit that would have gone to, you know, seconds product. It's it's what gets growers the most possible, um, you know, amount of money is, is Bravo for the so, the more we can get into that bracket without compromising what you know what the premium brand equity that we're building the, the better so for us it's it's a win both ways there's less second class fruit to deal with and there's more of the fruit that gets growers the most amount of money so it's it's really helping everyone in the chain and i would say with with the grade outs or the class two fruit there's also a significant more increased options a significant increase in um, allowable options on those yeah because if is, it's not which, you know if 25 i think you said yeah so if it's 25 percent of the fruit that's only going to make seconds grade what are those options that you were just talking about there that you, that weren't available in the previous seasons so previous seasons we've we've had to limit that to kind of outlets that's not accessible to general public. So that would be food processors and you know mining camps. Call it non-retail, non-metro. Whereas this season we have you know we have approval to sell them into retail and metro, provided that it's in a pre-packed form. If it's going into the same store as 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 Luz Bravo, you can imagine that if you have a fruit that on first lines has the same you know visual appeal as Bravo, but on closer inspection you may find that there's a bit more cosmetic defects on it, which made it you know uh, which kind of ruled it out to be a premium fruit. It does look exactly like Bravo and we want to avoid diluting the equity of Bravo by having class two fruit next to it with the same you know initial appearance so I would say this this year there's been you know a significant increase both from a specifications point of view but also from the allowable uses on those specifications for both premium and you know class two fruit. Bravo. National Development Manager Sean Engelbrecht with Jessica Hayes. Tom Sheehan farms at Donnybrook in the state's southwest and says despite some teething issues, the variety is proving to be a valuable one in his operation. We've got 6,000 trees about and at this stage it's only a small part of it but it's becoming more and more. Tell me how the season's going. Well we're Practically on our last day, um, we're rushing because we're worried about the rain. We've had a bit of an issue with the rain earlier this year, like a couple of weeks ago when we got that 60 mils, got a bit of cracking on the skin. Mm. So we've been through selectively a couple of times already and now we're, we're just getting the rest. So last day today, how has, uh, other than those sort of cracking issues, how's the general quality and and volume been this year for you? Well, it is better this year. We, Where we haven't netted, we've lost a lot of apples through sunburn, which seems to be one of the traits of these, especially on the uh, afternoon sun side of the trees. But everything else is improving, fruit quality is definitely improving, I think, possibly just because we're getting better at growing them, but it's just sweet, it's easy to grow big, and it's really solid and crisp fruit. So 
I, the more I grow them, the more I like them. When you look at the the variety this year and across the board, it, so it, would you describe it as a success story so far, given the lessons you're learning? Well, I'm quietly confident. Yeah, I'm sure that it's going to be good. It's, it's, it's unique. I can't see any apples like it. It's uh, the taste is beautiful, and I think that getting the hang of growing it will be. That's the secret of it. The, you know, there's it's a million kilos up on last year, and there are projections that that's just going to keep going up until a, a certain sort of critical mass is reached. How excited are you about the opportunities when we look at potential overseas opportunities for marketing the fruit, and, and where do you stand on that? Well, we are high-cost producers, there's no doubt about that, so everything else that we export seems to come up against it eventually but initially because of the you know the uniqueness of it I reckon it'll be it'll be easy enough to export for a while Mm. after that when we've got a lot of competition I don't know how we'll go That's Donnybrook apple grower Tom Sheehan with Jessica Hayes and I wasn't thinking about eating an apple before, but after listening to Tom, I really feel like one now. Uh, There's more of the story online. Just search Bravo Apple Production ABC. Bravo Apple Production ABC and you will find that story. It is 621 and you're staying in the apple orchard for just a little bit longer to take a look at some new technology, a robot that picks fruit. That is the sound of an autonomous harvesting robot, which is capable of identifying and picking apples at a rate of one every sort of seven to nine seconds. It has been developed right here in WA by Dr Chow Chen from Monash University's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. A human picker can pick an apple at probably under four to five seconds. But uh, the robot doesn't need to break, so it can work longer. It can work and day and night. And uh, with the improvements of the technology, and we can definitely make it much quicker. So even today, we only run the capacity of 40% in order to be safe in experiment. Okay, so you're not having a frenzy of apple picking. This is very much a, a moderate test of what the robot is capable of. Apples yeah. are pretty firm and pretty sturdy. So I imagine this machine goes pretty well at, at, at not bruising the fruit. Could it at some point pick softer fruit? Could it pick more fiddly fruit? Yes, different fruits and uh, have different features. So this is going to be our next research direction. We need to design a new grapper and a softer grapper to handle and a softer and fruits. A robot with softer fingers and a more delicate... Yes more delicate touch. Realistically, how many years are we away from this kind of technology doing the jobs that backpackers, international visitors, grey nomads and others have traditionally done? This is definitely the future to go. Regarding the time, it really depends how much push we can give to this type of technology. I would say three to five years. 
Dr Chow Chen from Monash University's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering telling you and Jeff Hutchison about his fruit-picking robot. Uh, This is the Country Hour and it's four minutes to one. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for the world today. Jobs, jobs, jobs. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, flags how the government intends to get the economy moving again and drive Australia's post-pandemic prosperity. And street fights for oxygen and the skies choked with the smoke of the cremated. India's COVID crisis only gets worse. But what about in our region? We take a look at the situation in Papua New Guinea. The World Today. Join us. Three minutes to one, three minutes away from the news at one to the markets now. And it's off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. There was a total yarding of 1,345. So about 250 up on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner's at the Mount Barker sale yards now. Were the prices any good today, Tracy? All prices were good, Belinda. A highlight of the sale was a large line of Angus heifers selling as future breeders up to 582 cents a kilo. All the young female categories gained with demand, while the steers eased this week with a lesser quality yarding, selling to a top of 558 cents a kilo. Heavy cows eased, selling to 348 cents a kilo. The weaner steers weighing over 330 kilos made from 450 to 528 cents. Medium weights from 498 to 540 cents. And the lightweight weaner steers returned 468 to 558 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 330 kilos made from 428 to 578 cents. Medium weights from 420 to 582 cents. And light weights returned 430 to 482 cents a kilo. Yearling steers sold from 416 to 470 cents, while the yearling heifers gained returning 350 to 436 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing over 500 kilos sold for 368 to 386 cents, while the lighter weights gained 20 cents returning 434 to 460 cents a kilo. Grown heifer prices gained with weights over 540 kilos, making from 330 to 378 cents, and the lighter trader weights sold from 320 to 408 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows eased, selling for 274 to 348 cents. Medium weights made 280 to 320 cents, and the bonus returned 180 to 330 cents for young cows. Heavy bulls sold for 270 to 318 cents. Medium weights made from 354 to 384 cents in a better quality yarding. And lightweight bullies returned 352 to 442 cents to average 394 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. Going through the details at the Mount Barker cattle market today with a total yarding of 1,345. Uh, just a follow up text to a point raised by Albert in Cogen up earlier. I was looking at the, asking about the rule of thumb when it comes to broadacres spraying near towns and he noticed a smell in town this morning and then he noticed a farmer spraying with the wind going straight towards town. And this, just follow up to that comment, uh, Tom Powell says, my biggest concern is the guys with the big programs using aerial contractors to do summer spraying. Uh, Don't think I like it says Tom. Thank you for that. And good to talk to you today here on the Country Hour. I'll be back here tomorrow. I hope you will be too. On ABC WA, it is time for the news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.